Yeah, is this okay? Because I know you, you get animated, you I get, get, you get G- excited. G- yeah, you do. <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, talking about philosophy and or uh, craft beer or music sometimes can bring out a kind of uh, sprite in you. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I get a, a lot little, of hand yeah, movements. A little jittery, a, of, yes. <laughs> a little overexcited. Yeah, especially as I start drinking a little bit more. Yeah, uh, which is what's happening now. And exactly. In, right. in yeah. fact, that's the basis of this uh, podcast, really. Is yeah. My idea was uh, a text message that basically went like this. What if we got drunk and talked about philosophy on a podcast? I'm someone who doesn't know very much about philosophy. You know quite a lot more than I do. Yes. Wouldn't it be funny if we did that whilst drunk? I mean, basically, the, the idea of the podcast is terrible, but if you add whilst drunk to it, I think that that's the niche. You know, that that's the uh, that's the thing that catches people's interest. Right. Yeah. Uh, does he, well, it makes does it relatable. Angle? Does it drill? The, yeah, because if yeah. we say, oh, it's two guys talking about philosophy, Ugh, boring, who cares? Yeah, exactly. But they're drunk. Whoa! <laughs> Wait! This is yeah. fun now. Well, right. I mean, it's, you know, I've actually had probably some of the best conversations about philosophy. If you're, you know, just disinhibited enough to let thought flow freely, yep. that tenderly, that works in your favor. If you are a little too drunk, you tend to... Yeah, th- that's know, my problem is I always end up... incoherence. Tipping, yeah, I tip over not, not only into incoherence, but into either paranoia or... Um, a very angry kind of oh, yeah. <laughs> very yeah, yeah, angry yeah. philosophy yeah, nihilism <laughs> tends to come out um yeah so I, I have to monitor that myself but definitely there is that kind of sweet spot probably between about two and three drinks in right where you know you're lubricated right exactly well, and <laughs> everything goes yeah, a lot better go. when lubricated it, as we well this is my third beer so I'm yeah i know so we're starting yeah. we're starting on a bad spot <laughs> we're starting at the at the tail end of the good part there we go this we is spend, go south quick yeah we spend the good part talking about video games mostly uh off mic and then we're like okay we should probably do this podcast now that's what yeah. i came here for and uh yeah we so you missed all the good chat now we we're going to do some of the uh, slightly yeah, drink wobbly chat. We were talking about Red Dead Redemption and Souls. The whole, the whole shebang. Yeah. you got to move that mic closer a little bit. Oh, okay. You try yeah. and like, uh, imagine that it's a, uh, a phallus, you know, yes, uh, yes. that you're trying to very, pleasure very with nice. your breath. There you're trying go. to tease it with your breath. Is this close enough? Is this, yep, this going to work? I'm getting quite aroused. All right. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Perfect. The levels are getting aroused too. <laughs> Great. Um, all right. So you, Daniel... Mm. are my philosopher friend i sometimes call you my bald philosopher friend just so people know exactly who i'm talking about yes um and we met should, yeah should we talk about how we met first like how we came to know each other uh sure i mean go for it i mean you're you, you're you're a good storyteller <laughs> who tells the story better you are a better storyteller. Oh, you tell it sweetie no 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 come on <laughs> no you, you here you're the script writer i am the abstract uh, meditator <laughs> That's one way of saying I'm the uh, lonely wanker. Exactly right. So we met in um, in Westwood, California, in about, I don't know, what, 2013 probably? It was about mm. a year after I got here, after I got to America. Yeah, it was either 12 or 13 for sure. Yeah, and it's when um, uh, Colin and I, my, my other friend Colin and I, were at uh, the film school here. And so we would hang around this kind of area after after school at night. And uh, would hang around the bars here, and at some point we kept bumping into you in these bars because you were there all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I tended to be there, yeah, 
all the time. <laughs> Literally every time I would go, I think you'd be there. Yeah. So after a while, you know, at first you were just still the there. Face, though. Yeah. You're still there. Yeah. Not right, not right now, but you know. no, not not during this whole time. But not during this I time. imagine as soon as it's over, yeah, you'll be back. As soon as it's there. open, I'm back. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I I don't really remember how we got talking, but. How did we get told him? You know, if I had to guess, it would be I came outside and asked for a cigarette or something. That, like that. sounds pretty likely. That sounds yeah. a very like a very likely. And then you know, I either intruded into your conversation or you're very chatty yourself. Yeah. So we probably just started yapping about whatever it was that we were, you know. Yeah. Talking. No, that that makes some sense to me, and I think. Uh, <sighs> I, I remember like striking up a very casual bar friendship, like bar compatriot friendship. Um, yeah, where we would go out for a cigarette and talk or whatever. Or oh, well, what are you up to? What do you do? Oh, that's cool. Yeah, blah blah blah. Right. Uh, very much like that. And then I remember like one of the waitresses saw you talking to me <laughs> outside, and this was a waitress who talked to me all the time oh, God, for some yeah. reason. But wasn't it? I mean, this was a little bit later, right? I think this was after we had already hung out. Oh, like, was it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I don't know, but I remember her coming up to me and going like, "Oh, was that guy bothering you or something like that?" Or like, "Do you know him?" And I was like, "Oh, yeah, he's he's <laughs> you know he's around." She was like, "He he eats food off other people's plates when they're done, like <laughs> when people leave the bar and they're gone and they're and gone. they're gone." Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's not just like they're there and they're like, "I'm done," and I'm like, "Can I?" Have? And she was like, "Yeah, he, wait for them." He to goes leave. around eating people's leftovers. Uh, and, that's a little yeah. And I was like, "Oh." Oh, okay, and I thought it was like oddly snobby of a waitress to to say that about Yo, someone yeah. in a student town. No, you know what's the worst know? thing? I, I found her really attractive. I was into her. She was incredibly attractive. Yeah, and yeah. I was like, I, but she always gave me this like weird look, and then I understood. Well, I mean, well, I yeah. Later, I told you. Oh, she thinks yeah. you're a scavenger. Yeah, yeah. She thinks you're like a, <laughs> thinks you're like a bum, basically going into this bar. Yeah, and eating like, off people's plates. Yeah, um, I guess that that's the impression that you would get if somebody was just like. Yeah. yeah no you're right that must fries. that must have come later though because when she told oh, me yeah, that, that i remember later. thinking oh of course he does yeah, yeah you know yeah. <laughs> it didn't surprise me or ick me out in any way i was just like oh well yeah that's daniel of course he would of do course that. of course why not um no so then i remember at some point i don't remember the hows and where's and why's but at some point we were in my car together driving somewhere because uh, uh, there were other people and people would, you know, the bars would close and then people would go back to some house or something like that. Yeah. And occasionally uh, we'd go too. And I, I, I think I was in my car and you were in there too. And on my shuffle, like Spotify shuffle Cradle or whatever, Fred LaFilf came on. It was yep. like... Yeah, we have 13 Autumns and a Widow. 13, was it that one? I yeah. think so. I think so. I was and in the back you, seat. You, you were in the back Colin. seat and you just went, ah, Cradle of Filth. And I was like, yeah. yep. Because a lot, of, a lot of people say, oh, Cradle of Filth, because they know that one or two I songs. I knew the lyrics. <laughs> but then he starts saying the lyrics to this 20-year-old yeah. album. I even remember what you said as a response. I said, oh, this guy. <laughs> yeah, then I was like, all right, I like this fella now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, th this is good because I have never been able to share that interest with anyone on that kind of level. Level. Dude, let me yeah. say it's absolutely it's the same here. It's uh, I've been listening to you know metal for years and years and years yeah. and years, decades at this point, right? Uh -huh. And I've actually never quite met any. I mean, I really have never met another person who knew the lyrics to those albums. No, like especially you know, still. Yeah, like maybe they did when the thing came out and we were listening to it, but not even then. No, because even then, pretty freaking you know elaborate like lyrics, incredibly elaborate, incredibly yeah, elaborate. which people are always surprised by, you know, yeah, because Cradle of Filth. First of all, the band name sounds stupid. They look very stupid. Yeah, the aesthetic, they, like the, the aesthetics are kind of ridiculous, yeah, and yeah. they also got a kind of gothy teenage girl following. Absolutely. Yeah, especially now, right? Yeah, but if you go back and look at like especially those '90s albums and look at the lyrics, they're you know Byron-esque, pretty, very very technical yeah, and 
very, very florid and very imaginative and really brilliant. So that was one of the first things I remember anyway, where I was like, oh, this guy, okay, I might, I might get on with this fella. And I remember for the rest of the night, I think we pretty much ignored the other people we were with because we were just talking about that. And that's a really special moment for me. It's like when you meet someone and you have something that you can talk about that you basically are comfortable being completely rude and antisocial and ignoring everyone else just so you can chat about that in detail with someone that you found a kinship with. So that was the first thing. And then I think we found out that we had a very similar taste in not only other music, but also movies. You know, there were movies that you'd seen that I didn't think anyone else had seen. Right. (laughs) Obviously other people that had seen them, but no one that I was likely to meet. You know, I, I was used to, uh, you know, being among people who really didn't know that much about movies in general or, like, older movies. So, like, I remember Salo was one of the first movies Salo we talked one. about. And actually, I think the the oldest conversation that I remember us having, other than the Cradle of Filth moment, Epiphany, was uh, a conversation, argument, discussion about Lars von Trier's uh, Antichrist. That's right, yeah. 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 Which you I didn't had, like it very much I at didn't the time. like it at yeah, first, yeah. And, and you persuaded me to look at it again. You gave me some arguments about why you thought it was uh, actually more interesting than I gave it credit for, and you were right. I mean, I did watch it again, and I was much more... It's still not my favorite Lars von Trier, by no means. I, no, mine you know, either. I, yeah. I like Melancholia quite a bit. But yes. anyway, yeah, I mean, we talked about Antichrist, and I remember I saw it again, and that was, that was a very good... Cool, I mean, that would set the, I think, blueprint for many of our... Uh, much of our relationship, which is, of course, um, both pugilistic argumentatively, mm-hmm. but also uh, passionately engaged with the material, right? Like, That's true. Yeah, we fight all the time. Yeah, or, we do. We, do. At least we, we argue. used to. Yeah, yeah. yeah we disagree we all debate. the time. We debate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We <laughs> debate very bit. Yeah, that's, that's a fancy way of putting it. That's a good way Half the time it. I'm like, oh, shut up, you wanker. You yeah, know? yeah. I mean, it <laughs> escalates sometimes to, 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 to uh, gnarly proportions. Uh, yeah, full on fist fights yeah, in, in the streets of yeah. San Diego. Yeah, San Diego, yeah. Now, another thing, at what point did we start talking about philosophy because obviously i knew that that's what you'd made your career of and i never made a career or anything close to a career out of uh, philosophy or anything similar but i did study it a little bit a very very little bit in um high school and and i like kept up with it on a very very superficial level so i know just about enough of the key components of you know like the history of philosophy like you know right. i know about socrates and aristotle and plato and you know Locke, barclay hume and all of that and, oh yeah okay <laughs> uh, then i you know i became a fan of some of them you know so i really liked uh, when i was younger i thought nietzsche was awesome and yeah then schopenhauer i still to this day i think i align pretty closely with his worldview still which not a very popular thing to say nowadays but i still yeah. i think he was a very good writer i'm actually oh he's uh, a wonderful writer. Yeah, yeah i'm not sure i'm not sure we've ever talked about him in that much depth no since no so I started no, reading it, and of properly, course, I mean, yeah. it makes perfect sense that uh, I'm, I'm guessing. I'm not. I'm not. Let me ask you this question. I mean, did you get? Uh, did you read Nietzsche first or Schopenhauer first? I read Nietzsche first, but I read Schopenhauer in more depth. You know, it's because Nietzsche is so much more popular, and mm. you know, especially if you listen to things like metal, you'll hear Nietzsche's oh, name yeah. and phrases. I mean, he's just much more pop. Yeah, you know? I mean, uh, phrases we use quite often every every day are uh, Nietzschean. You know, yeah. Are, in fact, you know, some kind of root. In whenever them, right? I talk to people, I mean, the the most likely, let's say, quotes that the, they'll know from philosophy from canon canonized philosophy will be 
God is dead. Yeah. You know, I think therefore I am maybe by Descartes. And oh, yeah, of course. I know that I know nothing by Socrates. Yeah. Right? The, the classical Platonic like trope. Well, D Descartes was one of the ones that we studied most uh, rigorously in, in high school. So like meditations I th I think that, was... That tends to be... Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and I also believe that uh, Descartes is in a certain way the easiest entry point into philosophy. I mean, it is, yeah. Yeah. It, it also is pretty... Well, from what I remember of him anyway, he encompasses quite a lot of very general philosophical ideas so you know the brain and the vat thing and the exactly. foundationalism and stuff like well what do Absolutely. i know and the only thing i know is right you know like so yeah i, I can understand why it's a pretty good entry point but also even at the age of uh, when did i start learning 17 18 um i was pointing out fucking holes in it all the time you know like his oh, his, yeah. his whole foundationalism idea you know where i've got to i've got to forget everything that i know and then work from the ground up so that i exactly. can build a yeah. worldview and then he very instantly kind of comes to the idea that well obviously god's still real right you well know? the thing i mean that's i mean he gets to that point fairly quickly and that's the moment where most people especially today get slightly disappointed that's a shock jump i think yeah that was and, and, and everybody i mean when i teach descartes uh because generally we don't have you know much time to spend a whole lot of time with descartes we read the first three meditations yeah. right and so everybody tends to be pretty impressed with the ego like yeah. you know the, the cogito agrosum part but you know, when you get back to the God, you know, as as the platform through which you recover the rest of the world, that's when people lose their. It's just quite a quick. It is jump to that. It is from okay. I know I, I know nothing. I'm basically building this from the ground up uh, to to re because I'm I don't right. know what I've learned might just be I don't know if it's sense data or blah blah blah. Um, I'm, I'm phrasing that really badly, but he basically, no, 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 it makes sense. That's I what mean, he yeah. tries to do, right? I mean, he, he tries begins to, with perception, tabula like, rasa, yeah. right? So that's, what didn't can, he coin that phrase, tabula rasa, like oh, blank no, slate? No, no, no. That I wasn't mean, him. No, I mean, uh, the idea of a tabula rasa is actually more closely associated with empiricism. So, as you know, like Descartes uh, is considered of the rationalist, rationalist yeah. right? Empiricism says that uh, we as minds are basically empty of content when we're born, and that only through experience oh, do we acquire I see, knowledge. Right? Right. Whereas Descartes thinks that if you, from the armchair, it's not about like, yeah. you know, going no, up to- No, you can infer and deduct. Exactly yeah. right, exactly Okay, right. so, but, but he did say that basically I need to forget everything that I've learned because I don't know if it's right. been taught to me or if it's real or not, right. basically, n right? Not forget, of course, because that's not possible. It's not like no, you can- No, you no, can, no, no. But, but to, to work from a frown. Exactly. Well, to to suspend belief. Suspend belief. So his method is something that he calls radical doubt, which me basically means let us for as a, as a thought experiment, right? Because that's what he's trying to do. It's a thought experiment. He says basically, let us uh, simply suspend belief in everything that we have taken for granted so far, so so that we can only assume that which we can know with absolute certainty. This is what in philosophy is called apodictic knowledge. Mm -hmm. Apodictic means, you know, basically with absolute certainty. Right. And so he begins by examining all the different kinds of knowledge that he generally, and we all generally take for granted, and begins dismantling its credentials, right? right? First being, of course, perceptual knowledge. Mm -hmm. We normally think, well, what's the most certain thing that we know of well what, what we, we see, see what touch, we touch yeah. what we feel but you know it takes us very little to figure out just you know and all you know 
we, we don't have to say as everybody knows but like the matrix and all these yeah. other you know movies and popular cultural experiments yeah, whether it's a simulation or even a hologram right. of some kind but and but i could he, be dreaming and i could yeah. be this and that but then he also isn't that where he brought in the malicious demon argument? the evil demon evil demon yes, yeah, yes. so that's or the brain in the vet thing right so his idea his you know his um well the brain in the vet is actually a more a much more modern consideration of that i mean modern not in the sense of modern philosophy oh he, he didn't Read it that way. No, no, no. He just no, said no. evil demon. Okay, yeah. so he he was wondering if he was just a brain that might be being. Well, he didn't really wonder this, but he posited that for all we know, we could be a brain being fed information by a malicious exactly demon, right. and therefore nothing we see or touch or feel is actually real. It's just uh, well, artificial information. Yeah. So, so that never. I mean, the 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 way it's been canonized as the brain in the vat story. That's actually part of the uh, Anglo-Saxon reading of of the Cartesian sort of thought experiment so if you look uh you probably know daniel dennett right yes right yeah. so he actually um and i highly recommend this to anybody who wants to uh take a look at like a cool little short story based upon a cartesian thought experiment run amok in a kind of sci-fi context okay it's called uh who am i what am i or where am i no where am i i think it's, it's cool where hey, i am whatever, yeah. where, where, where am i where am i okay. yeah uh, by anyway, daniel dennett it's yeah it's, okay. it's, i didn't know he wrote fiction yeah, yeah. Well, that's actually one of. I mean, he has like three or four like very short stories that are philosophy fictions. Because Daniel Dennett, if you don't know, is a philosopher, but he also focuses quite a lot on theology and religion, right? Yes, I mean that's you know after he uh, joined the quote unquote the you know, four new horsemen, atheists, of the four horsemen atheism of or whatever the fuck they call themselves. Yeah. I mean, but he's a philosopher by training who mostly works on the philosophy of science, and most of his work, published work is uh, on the philosophy of science. So he oh, works okay. a lot on philosophy of mind and philosophy of science and the intersection between the two. You know, how it, I mean, classical questions that get raised often in philosophy that were already very much Descartes' questions. How mm -hmm. do the mind and the body interact, right? Is the mind reducible to the body? So that if you have, say, a comprehensive knowledge of the brain, of neurophysiology, neurobiology, then, you know, knowledge of the mind comes with that. Uh, or is there a sense in which our understanding of the mind cannot be reduced or assimilated to our knowledge of how the brain functions. And these are questions that are very much still with us today. So, all right, well, before we get too much into that, then you should yeah. probably give your credentials. <laughs> of course, mm. people might be like, well, who am I listening? Does this guy know anything? Is he just yeah. a blabbering no, idiot? I, don't, I know that I don't know. Nothing. <laughs> 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 well, there you go. Uh, no, but... Uh, so those are mine. I have very, very superficial understanding of m uh, many of the key areas and or, or like the main. I, I have. I'm a philistine when it comes to philosophy, right? Like yes. it's not that I have an op opposition to it, uh, but I only know the very, very basics, the the mainstream. That stuff. would be a good title, by the way, philistine philosophy. Philistine philosophy. Oh, that's not bad. Actually, that wouldn't be it? that bad. Although well, philistine generally refers to the arts, doesn't it? Not. No, it just means uncultured. Uncultured. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, I would call myself like interested but i don't i've never had the dedication to go much further and from the very few people i know who did get go kind of go down the rabbit hole with philosophy yeah. yourself included it seems to have some kind of disastrous results <laughs> so, i mean it's, oh, yeah. it's 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 not a it's not a hobby really it's a lifestyle choice right. once you dedicate yourself to that you're you're in you don't really i mean you, you would be able to tell me better than i would but it seems like people who i, I never meet a casual person who has a normal job and a normal life who also really knows a lot about philosophy. It seems like once you know a lot and once you really get into that way of thinking, then that kind of becomes 
your purpose. Maybe to an extent, you're like, well, what's the point in anything else? Because this is like, yeah. you know? Yeah, and I that's mean, not to say that you don't do anything else, because no, you course. certainly do, but yeah. anyway. In fact, I think philosophy made me more curious natural as a person. Yeah. So, uh, you know, because I think, well, I mean, there's a lot of, to to explore there, but you're right that, well, at least in, at least in my case, I definitely, I totally identify what you just said. When I, when I discovered philosophy, it was so intoxicating. Um, I think partially the reason is because philosophy gives you a sense of ordering and a feeling of power that mm. you can sort of like, oh, now I understand how it all fits together. Right. You know, like everybody sort of understands that the world is this like incomprehensibly complex motley of practices from art to politics to science to religion to sports whatever you want um, and then philosophy comes along or the philosopher comes along and tells you here's a theory that puts everything in, in its place right and so it gives you the sense of order the sense of mastery over everything over history itself and that is very special when you're young right um, mm-hmm. alluring and you know of course what happens generally is that you have your favorites and you become really convinced and then you get into intricate like confrontations with other people who hold you know other views and so on and so forth is it kind of like religion in that way do you think i mean a lot of the things that you were just the, the things that you were attributing to getting into philosophy sounds quite similar to people who might find a religion you know like so you start learning it you feel a mastery over the world and over history you start to put yes. things together and then also you get so attached to one way of thinking that you find yourself you know in conflict yes. with people who think differently yes. do you not think it's a little bit similar yeah i absolutely think so i mean and, and for that matter it's not that dissimilar to other fields of, of human intellectual practice like science right insofar as you know people draw the the coordinates of their worlds and of their experiences. uh, Well, academics (laughs) and intellectuals tend to do very strongly based on uh, the books that they happen to read, the professors they have happened to have, the discussions they happen. And, you know, books are extremely, you know, they leave a mark on these people because they end up working on these books for a living, right? And cultish, uh, you know, followings develop. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I personally try to, um, even though I've had my affiliations, my sympathies and antipathies as well, right? I've always tried to resist the temptation of becoming simply a scholar in the sense of someone who follows someone's, someone else's view. I always thought since the very beginning that philosophy, reading or learning the history of philosophy was a platform to eventually come out with your own. With my own. Yeah. Right? And not because of some egocentric, like maniacal thing. It was more like I want to contribute to this history, right? To this right. field. And that, I think, is where certainly you differ from me and probably from most of the rest of the world, right? Is that you care enough about it and care that you're that deeply invested in it. Like, from many points in my life, I've, my conclusion has basically been, oh, it's impossible. You know, it's fucking impossible to really know what's going on or anything. And you're kind of wasting your life by just pondering the hows and the whys and the wherefores and all of that. But I flip between it. Like, there's, right. there's a part of my brain that does want to get into it, but... I'm certainly not dedicated enough to. So I was going to ask you. Too, right? I'm sorry. It's very time consuming. It's certainly time consuming, and yeah, like like I s- suggested, it seems like a lot of people who do get into it, they kind of have to go the whole way. You know, it's hard to be like have one foot in and one foot out of academic philosophy, right? Well, actually, I mean, you asked a question that I I don't think we we got to answer, which was uh, how quickly into our like friendship did philosophy show up? And I, I honestly don't remember. I think it, it it never did as a kind of full-blown topic that we just started talking about philosophy. It's more like, you know, I mean, obviously I told you what I was doing with my life and mm-hmm. 
also to answer what are my credentials because we also uh, didn't yeah answer. yeah we should probably get yeah to yeah, that yeah sorry at some point. Uh, I mean we keep getting I mean that's part of that's what philosophical yeah, uh, philosophical yeah. discourse yeah, I mean, is it's right a lot it's a of lot diversion. of tangents and oh and so many of the great philosophers are always like they'll start a book saying oh here's the project this is what we're gonna do and they never finish the project <laughs> yeah. right? so by the end of the book you get to like you know step two and they got diverted into well, anyway yeah um, no, and that's kind of how our conversations tend yeah. to go as well but I mean that's part of the thing is like you you you, you know you don't you don't know what is worth exploring or needs to be answered sometimes until you sort of like you get in the there. middle of the yeah, way yeah. right and then you have to take that you know side route that that you know uh, side road sorry yeah and then eventually you find your way back if you do at all sometimes the questions change this happens all the time but anyway no. uh, well i'm gonna force you to find your way back to yeah, yes. roughly what your history My, with philosophy so is. so i well, like, when did when for instance when did you first realize that you that that was something you were interested in so so the first time I, you can go way back. Okay, yeah. I mean, I mean, not to bore with excessive autobiography because who cares? But 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 like, the, I guess the 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 two essential moments were first, when I was in high school, right? I didn't really know anything about philosophy. I had never read philosophy as such, any philosophers. But I was very much into literature. I was reading a lot of poetry, novels, short stories. Um, of all kinds, right? Uh, of all traditions and you know, translated from all languages. Um, but I was also writing in, uh, I was very influenced by Dostoevsky at the time, especially uh -huh. Notes from the Underground was a very influential work for me. Okay. Um, you know, I was like your typical sort of renegade teenager mm -hmm. and Notes from the Underground struck me as a piece of aberrant literature where the character had this kind of like absolute disregard for his society mm -hmm. you know and I at, a, at the time I was naive so I thought Dostoevsky was kind of the underground man himself <laughs> I didn't pull them apart I didn't realize Dostoevsky was criticizing the underground man but anyway um, and Dostoevsky he's one of those authors that we got a lot of in the uh, well 18, uh, 19th and 20th century who kind of crossed over you know kind, kind of like uh, Jean-Paul Sartre for instance exactly. you know, they were, they were yeah. kind of well, Sartre was also a philosopher. Right? Exactly, but you could say the same about Dostoevsky. Maybe not yeah. professionally or academically, but certainly the books that he wrote were almost like philosoph philosophical right, right. parables. Well, or, yeah, I mean, the, the only thing is that Sartre actually had like philosophical systematic treatises. Yeah, not a right? bad example. Like critique I, um, of dialectical reasoning. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, <laughs> maybe a bad example, but see, this is why I'm this is why I'm who I am. I don't really know this stuff. Uh, no, but that's no. I mean, your point is still is, is right, which is yeah, you know, like, there is a bit of a crossover, and that's. Actually, uh, that's a big question on its own, right? Like uh, the borders between disciplines. Is there is there is there a moment where literature stops and philosophy begins? Mm -hmm. One of the tropes that uh, became very popular in the 20th century, especially in what is called postmodernity, right, is that you know uh, different forms of d discourse that are normally not considered literature can be considered in an extended sense kinds of literature even yeah. science religion philosophy you name it right so it depends all it all depends on what your concept of literature is yeah. how broad how narrow it is and so on and so forth and, and also if, if, if i i mean f uh, forgive me if i'm wrong but i believe that philosophy as its own um not doctrine as its own uh, field uh, didn't that wasn't really the case until fairly recently, like a few centuries ago, right? Before then, it was the natural sciences and the it, it was part of oh, it was I tied see, into yes, it was tied into science, right? Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, well, philosophy as a separate thing from science, yeah, was 
uh, is actually yes a relatively modern construction. Like, I mean, seventeen hundreds, sixteen hundreds. Yeah, yeah, it's actually yeah. a modern construction because even if you go back into, I mean, there was a distinction between fields that were say, pro, for example, in the medieval and scholastic period, mm-hmm. um, the way that the system of knowledge, if we want to call it that, right, or the schooling system, the way you divided the academic branches uh, was between two great fields, what was called metaphysica generalis and mm-hmm. metaphysica specialis in Latin, obviously. Right. Uh, metaphysica specialis was divided into three subfields, psychology, psicologia, theology, which is the study of God, yeah. obviously, and then it was cosmology, which was roughly what we would consider the study of the natural world. Uh-huh. So the study of man, psychology, the study of God, the summum ens, right? Mm-hmm. And the study of nature, inanimate nature, right? Okay. Cosmology. And next to this, which was metaphysica specialis, special metaphysics, was general metaphysics, right? Right. Which would encompass things like the principles of logic, uh, general philosophy, and so on and so forth, right? Um, So so the, the consolidation of a separation between science and philosophy you know, it's it's not it's not an overnight thing. It's not like you can put a date on it, right? It's something. It's a gradual process, yeah. but it but it definitely becomes accentuated with the birth of modern science, right? Because with modern science, you have, I mean, and this is a really complex story that might be a little too intricate to get to into immediately right now, but, um, you know, especially with the great revolutions of Copernicus, Galileo, Newton, but also Descartes, Leibniz, and so on. Uh, you have a tectonic shift in how science is conceived and how the natural world is conceived. And philosophy, here's where things become controversial. Philosophy in many ways follows this development and in other ways lags behind it. In many ways, philosophy remained beholden to, let's say, theology and Mm -hmm. older, you know, the older older, uh, metaphysical worldview. In other ways, it became aligned to it. Uh, And the way that this alignment or disalignment has worked has been explored by many many thinkers to this day well yeah i mean uh, yeah so how much of what we call philosophy now is pretty much just retroactive right like for instance you know stoicism is considered sort of a branch of philosophy now but really what it refers to is uh notes from either emperors or uh you know, political figures who were basically just writing stuff down. They weren't trying to contribute to any field of academia or anything like that. Like, uh, you know, one of the most famous Stoic texts is yes. uh, Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, yeah, of course. which were just notes in his journal. He didn't even anticipate they would be published. Right. Uh, but that now constitutes a, a part of philosophy. Yes. So it's never, at least until recently, it, I mean, th- I guess that's what I'm saying is that it's a relatively recent pheno- phenomenon that someone can say, I'm a philosopher, that's going to be my field of study and that's going to be my field of right. uh, expertise and, uh, you know, that's what I'm going to contribute to. Well, the schools existed since Aristotle, right? Obviously. I mean, since the Greeks. Uh, but what happens oftentimes is that, would you say, when you say that uh, a lot of things are retroactive, is that... Um, you know, oftentimes words don't mean the same thing that they used to mean, right? Right. Uh, obviously. So take a very, uh, I guess, a, a word that most people tend to use often. Like, I'm a materialist, they will say, mm-hmm. right? Like, I don't know, materialism is a, is, 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 is a position that a lot of people will identify. Well, if if you ask a person in this day and age what materialism means... Oh, they mean... Uh, yeah, they think it means, oh, I want a bunch of iPads or... Exactly. <laughs> like, like consumerism, that, yeah. like pro-capitalist right. or something like that. Or if you're talking to someone in the context maybe of debating 
a religious person, they mean, well, I believe that everything is matter, that the world is made of matter, as mm -hmm. described by the natural sciences, i.e. physics, biology, chemistry, whatever, right? right? Um, but the history of materialism includes so many divergent positions. Like, for mm -hmm. example, people don't know, but Marx's theory was called dialectical materialism, and by materiality, he understood relations of production, for example, mm -hmm. class struggle are included within that, right? right. Um, how your concept of materiality or what matter is is every bit as controversial as whether you're a materialist or an idealist. Um, so it's not only what, uh, the fights between philosophers or the controversies between philosophers is not are, are not only limited to materialist versus you know non-materialist. Within materialism, there's a whole debate about how should we understand materialism itself, right? right. So philosophy is this interminable, it goes back to what we were saying, like branching into these like side questions, right? Philosophy is a never-ending sort of coruscating spiral into ever more particular questions, which is why it becomes highly technical very quickly, yeah. and why the layman, quote-unquote, cannot follow after a very short period of time, right? Right, and that's pretty much me, a, a layman. I mean, I, I, I told my, my wife that I was gonna do this, mm. and uh, and I pitched it to her as, yeah, me who knows nothing about philosophy, and Daniel knows everything. Yeah. Or, yeah, obviously you don't know everything, but no, no, in very simple no. terms, I know nothing, you know everything. And she goes, oh, well, no, you're, you're definitely not a beginner, like, you know, this, this, and that. And it's like, yeah, compared to you, but, you know, we're still laymen. We're just diff we're on different levels of laymen. Like, I'm very, very, sure. <laughs> very aware that I'm nothing more than a layman when it comes to philosophy, um, and that doesn't mean that I can't follow along with what you're saying. But there is a point where I will either glaze over or just not understand at all what you're saying. Um, right. But uh, right. So here's another question. I mean, you kind of touched on this earlier, where you said that you didn't really. Uh, you were trying to avoid kind of categorizing yourself or aligning with one specific thing over the other. But is there a very simple, uh, concise way that you could sum up where you are coming from philosoph uh, philosophically? Yes. Like, what, what would you call yourself if well, you had to? In, in my current iteration, as I speak right now, I, I, I identify very strongly with um, the rationalist tradition when it comes to matters of epistemology that is theories of knowledge so when it comes to theory I mean, I mean we can we can get into we can clarify what that means right but first just to to lay it out um so i identify with rationalism on the one hand on the other hand i am a materialist i believe uh so i believe in materialism as well and the junction between the two rationalism and materialism um i pursue in the horizon of a particular let's say, tradition of thought that is most, let's say, canonically associated with the name of Immanuel Kant. Uh -huh. So I am uh, in the horizon of Kant, very much influenced by the thought of Wilfred Sellers, who is an American philosopher, was an American philosopher, I should say, and who has done much to try to reconcile many of Kant's insights, which were systematic, but also very much obviously limited by the science of his time and the provisional understanding of the science of his time, mm -hmm. updating it, as it were, in light of more recent developments, not only in the sciences, but in the philosophy of language and semantics and other fields of philosophy. So in a way, I'm a neo-Kantian of sorts, Okay. but my position is also informed by insights from other um, 
thinkers and traditions from Gilles Deleuze, Nick Land, Hegel, Alain Badiou, and many others. So at this point, it's very difficult to sort of pigeonhole it into a you know, set of terms. But rationalist materialism... <laughs> That's pretty much what you call yourself, a rationalist yeah. materialist? Yeah. The I, very, very basic? Yeah, it sounds, it sounds almost pedestrian. I mean, of course, the version of it that I espouse it is where, where the meat is, right? Like right. the two words don't tell you much by themselves. Um, again, because materialism means one of a hundred possible things. But uh, going back to one thing that you asked me, because I never actually finished the biographical uh, detail about the credentials. So I started yes. like reading Dostoevsky. Uh, so that was moment one where I started writing these completely amateurish, sort of almost confessionary diaries, which were attempts at self-reflection, but dealt with philosophical topics, much like right. the underground man, right? Like okay. well, there were critiques of society, of the human condition, of emotion, blah, blah, blah. Very naive. An angry right? teenage blog, a An angry teenage blog. I mean, hey, look, you could call any angry teenage blog on fucking Live Journal or whatever. Technically, it's a form of philosophy, even if it's a very shite one. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree. And of course, <laughs> I mean, and honestly, like, uh, I mean, it's easy to be sort of, uh, you know, uh, snide about it, but... Without having had that experience, I don't think I would have uh, been able to arouse the the minimal level of self-consciousness that then led me to get engaged with philosophy more seriously, right? And even now when I look at those writings, bad as they are, naive as they are, I still feel a sense of like wonder at the curiosity that is evinced there. Just like, you know a parent would look at their young child's writings and be like, well, that's actually impressive that, you know, you're going through that right now. Um, I don't know. Oh, well, yeah. No, yeah. no, like you say, it's easy to be snide about it and I will take that easy route and I will be snide about be <laughs> everything that, yeah, no, I mean, I, I did similar things at various points in my yeah. adolescence too, you know, I'm not ever thinking, oh, I'm really going to get to the, core of human existence here but when you look back at it you're like oh well there is some you know some semblance of a kind of philosophy developing here yeah uh not a particularly impressive one and certainly not one that i felt like pursuing much further but you evidently did so from there you went to was there a temptation for you though like did at any point did you feel oh, this is something that I might want to do with the rest of my life, and then you back down because of um, I, some other collateral reasons? Or? I think, as with most things that I've kind of found a passion for and then kind of abandoned, uh, I think I did until I started reading actual philosophy okay. <laughs> and seeing what it actually went. And not only being uh, overwhelmed by how technical it had to be, uh, but also overwhelmed by how all these ideas that I thought I'd come up with by myself and thought were really impressive had actually been written about for millennia, okay. if not more. So, you know, when you, so that, I think that's the crux, right? So many people, very, very many smart people um, have these moments of early intellectual awakening and exploration, right? Like me with Notes of the Underground. I don't know what was the text or the text that did you, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and then moment two was when I actually started reading philosophy, mm -hmm. right? And that happened during my first year of college. Uh, I took a course in logic and simultaneously a course in modern philosophy. So I was reading Descartes, Hume, Locke, Nietzsche, uh, what else? Maybe a little of Spinoza and Leibniz, and oh, I don't remember what else. But let's say those names for for, for right now. <clears throat> I remember being extraordinarily impressed. Descartes was, of course, 
the, the thing with Descartes is that it's so undemanding technically, the meditations, are, mm -hmm. right? Like anybody can follow. It's pretty simple. Yeah. yeah. Which is why I think, you know, it's much more relatable than if you make somebody jump, say, into Plato right now. Yeah. Right? Uh, maybe like the apology is something. but And also you said something which I wanted to touch upon, which is very important and interesting, which is you can poke holes in the argument really easily. It doesn't take a genius. Yeah. Right? And that made me feel, as a fucking angsty 17, 18-year-old, I was like, <laughs> I'm fucking taking I'm fucking down, smarter than all I'm this. taking down the greats. Yeah, 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 you know, and obviously then you later learn that you're a complete idiot, but <laughs> at, certainly at that point, I was like, <laughs> this guy doesn't know anything. Well, you know what's, what, what's something very interesting that I've learned, especially now that I teach philosophy, but certainly I had the same experience as you did, um, is that the quality of a philosopher does not reside in how irrefutable they are. Mm -hmm. I mean, any smart, moderately smart undergraduate can poke holes at Plato, Descartes, Nietzsche, etc. Yeah. Right? They can find like good objections, maybe not deadly objections, but you know, they can see well. This is not a very good argument, yeah. at least, right? Or it's inconsistent. Or but what makes a great philosopher a great philosopher is that it gives you a new way of looking at things. Mm -hmm. It's more about the imagination. I mean, that sounds yes. really corny. And, no, no, no. I think you're absolutely right. You know, yeah. Um, because, you know, I, I've met so many extraordinarily brilliant, quote-unquote, philosophers. I mean, people with degrees, with PhDs, who teach philosophy, who, again, devote all of their intellectual energy to, I don't know, defending Descartes' argument in Meditation 3 and publishing in these recondite journals that, you know, six people in the world read. And, you know, these are extraordinarily smart people that i mean if you read these articles i mean the technical degree of rigor that they deploy to this cause is daunting but that's not what the great philosophers that we recognize do right what the great philosophers do is they don't lose track of the forest for the trees you know what i mean mm -hmm. But philosophy is also uh, has to mind about the trees. It can't. So it's it's the the oh, beautiful it thing possibly about it. gets caught up in the branches all the time. It, exactly. Like, yeah. That's pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If anything, that's my frustration with it as well. Is the yes when you see philosophy, even like talking to you. Sometimes I'm just like, oh my god, like how are you so hung up on the like, this stupid? Yeah, it yeah. feels like the I'm, uh, uh, maybe a bit of an Occam's Razor type thing where I'm just like, isn't the simplest fucking you know like yeah, no, you I have to get so very very common frustration with this kind of stuff oh, but i understand why and trust me decimates yeah. personal relationships especially <laughs> you know with your partner you know your amours your significant oh, yeah. other oh my god like uh I mean, we are both of the argumentative type, so we know that that creates problems yes, by itself. Yeah, it really does. So if you're a professionally trained philosopher, like you think a lawyer is difficult to get along with, you know, if you're, <laughs> you know, for those of you who are listening and who are like, okay, I have, you know, a, law a lawyer or I'm a lawyer, that creates problems. Well, philosophers are tenacious and obnoxious. The and thing it's not, but the thing with a lawyer is that quite often they can argue a case that they are not necessarily so passionate about, but they exactly. know the argument techniques. With a philosopher, if they believe something and they're arguing for it, they believe that pretty much well, until no, no. they're no. You see, like think about Descartes, right? It's it's the, what happens with the philosopher. So in in this case, they do resemble like the lawyer doesn't have to believe. So the philosopher, all that the philosopher needs to do is interrogate why you think you think what you think. Yeah. They don't have to take a stand even. They just say, well, what do you mean by the word X, right? Yeah. Or what, you know, well, you said this, you said, you know, typical, like, um, if you read, you know, Plato, uh, the Socratic dialogues, how do they go? Everybody's having a good 
time, right? They're they're like <laughs> drinking, they're like wherever. And Socrates shows up and basically goes starts asking questions to, you know, some wise dude who's I know what justice is, I know what the good is, I know what this is, what that is. And of course, quickly enough, Socrates realizes that everybody who claims they know what they're talking about don't really know what they're talking about, right? Yes. They, they end up contradicting themselves, they don't have good reasons for what they're saying, or some some other flaw, right? And, and that is a big difference between you and me in terms of how we go about those kind of arguments. Because you've seen me, I know an, at least one example, you've been with me while I've been locked into a debate with, uh, uh, for instance, a religious person. Yeah. And someone, not only a religious, I, I don't really mind it. I'm not one of those atheists who fucking has to tear down anyone who believes in God. I really don't care. But if they start arguing for like scientific basis. Oh yes. You are my And you know who I'm talking about, right? <laughs> well I do remember the anthropological debate. Well there was that, but uh, I mean you remember that girl who was claiming the Dr. Ben Stein, who I <laughs> who I later remembered was the the Bueller Bueller guy from Ferris Bueller who then went on to become oh, a Christian yes, scientist. Yes, yes, wait, wait, this was an idol hour, right? It was an idol hour, yes. yes and uh, she was actually a girl that I was dating at the time. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, you know, it, it sure. was really in my interest if I wanted to oh push that any further. Jesus, uh, Jesus and Shakespeare, and she, <laughs> yeah, she said that there's as much historical evidence for Jesus and his teachings and his miracles as there is for Shakespeare. And I said that's just not fucking true. Yes. <laughs> that is just not fucking that true. Was and that's the thing where you know I could have, if I wanted to, just get my way, and yeah. I didn't have any kind of inclination towards the sorts of truth, right? Which is kind of what philosophy is to me, no, in yeah. a very layman's terms sure then i would have just gone like oh well that's what you believe and fair enough uh i can't fucking do that if someone's no, spouting no. absolute I, nonsense i remember and, how I, w I was trying to be extremely uh, smooth and that's what you yeah. did and that pedagogical right? and it, yeah i'm very diplomatic and that almost frustrated me because i was <laughs> like i know you and i was like yeah, you there's want me to no go way that you're even entertaining the oh, notion no 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 no, no. But well, you're a lot better at that than I am. Whereas well, I would just go, no, you're fucking I wrong. Well, like, I well, I think I think part of it comes with the trait, right? Like, um, of course, philosophers by and large have to be um, teachers, and you know, yeah. when you're when you're a teacher and you're dealing with you know dozens and dozens of undergraduates, um, you have to be both very patient and also very much uh, aware that you're going to be dealing with people who are even hostile to what you're going to be telling yeah. them, right? Especially when you're teaching materials that clash very directly with religion mm -hmm. right or religious views or other views uh that they might hold for other reasons and you have to go about it in a way that that barrier because of personal conviction right spiritual conviction whatever you want to call it does not obstruct their capacity to learn mm -hmm. so it's almost a necessity that you have to find a way to make them feel like it's not a contest. It's not like I'm trying to indoctrinate you. Mm -hmm. What I'm trying to get you simply to do is to understand as much about this position as possible. Right? And then choose as whether or not. You exactly. Right? Yeah. And I wish I could be that, <laughs> that yeah, level-headed. But when it comes to... Yeah, when it comes to some things where I'm just like, you know, this isn't even a difference of opinion. This is you saying things that are nonsense. Right. Uh, I can't abide it. And that's not, I, I don't oh, think Oh, trust me, I get, I, I also lose my, my temper. Yeah, no, uh, and look, and, I don't and, think and, it's and, a good trait of mine. 
or a positive one, but it is one that, uh, for, yeah. for better words, I have, and I know yeah. that it's very, very hard to get rid of, and I don't realize until way later that I'm like, well, what was the point in that? Like, yeah. you didn't change their yeah. mind, or you just you just got kind of frustrated with them and uh, made them feel stupid, yeah, I guess which it, isn't a nice thing to do, and not right. a useful thing to do if you actually want to well, for me, encourage people to I th- learn. I, th- I think a good, a good way to, at least this is how I got, because I'm like you, also very argumentative, right? I don't, mm-hmm. I don't, I mean, there's a pugilistic dimension to philosophy, which goes to the very idea of, you know, Greek democracy, which is about debate and about this kind of confrontation of views, right? Um, but of course, in a context in which you have to be also mindful of not only not hurting people, but you have to think about, well, what's my criterion of victory? What is a win? Exactly. Is it is it to make the other person humiliated, run out of arguments, like, you know, show that they're stupid, wrong, whatever? Or is it to make them learn something and be more open? Yeah. You know? I think that is, because especially, especially if they are really speaking nonsense, right? Or they are very confused or very ignorant or whatever. I want to help, right? <laughs> I mean, that's like, that's that's yeah. actually a more noble interpretation. And that's what I think I'm doing by right. just saying like, no, of course not. You know, but, <laughs> yeah, but I they, realize that it's, I, it's people not get the defensive. right way to yeah. go about it because they get very defensive, especially very if defensive. it's, yeah, 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 I mean, yeah. if we're talking about religion, it's usually something that's held very dearly to them and very emotionally. That's yeah. the main thing. It's like emotional reactions. Whereas, so coming at emotion with like logic and <laughs> you know doesn't tend to work very well. Yeah. So you have to either I mean you have better ways of dealing with it than I do. For oh, but, but but you know something. This is really funny. It, so like professionally trained philosophers will usually be very you know understanding and almost sw- like me, right? Like you know with, yeah. with people who are like you know they're not prof- because there's almost a patronizing attitude. Like oh you don't know that's, I'm going to teach you. And when we're talking about that situation, that's kind of what the feeling I got from you. I was like, well, you're just sucking up, kind but, of like you're but, in a really creepy okay. way. But then because I know that you. But think if this I talk to nonsense. another materialist who happens to have a slightly different like definition of materialism as I do, who is a professionally trained philosopher, I'll go for the gutter, right? Like <laughs> like I'll kill him. So it's like it's like I can take someone who believes that you know Shakespeare wasn't real uh, and it, whatever. <laughs> But if someone has a slightly, she did dis- say that. At one yeah, point. she, she did, was like, well, she "How did. do you know that Chase moves?" Well, but it, it, it's also like you know, it's it's easier. I mean, it's almost like you know, it's easier to get offended when there's a morsel of truth in something that you know threatens your position. Yeah. So when, when I hear something that is just simply ludicrous or very far out uh, or just comes out of ignorance, it's like not worth engaging yeah. with too strongly. You know, this yeah. is kind of a strange thing, but I. I um, I read this quote by Henry Miller. I actually have it over there. I don't remember by heart. And I can't. Henry Miller, the novelist? Yeah, yes, yes. Okay. Uh, it, it was weird. I was reading um, a book, a philosophy book, and apparently it came with uh, a page separator, right? And it was uh, it was imbued with this like Henry Miller quote, oh. and it just fell out of the middle of the book because I hadn't gotten there yet. And it was like, anyway, but the point is, it uh, the quote uh, is about how it is that we must uh, resist the temptation to hate that which is offensive to us, right? Mm-hmm. And the, where am I going with this? Um, that when you, when I, now when I encounter a position that is uh, diametrically opposed to what I believe, so when I do have a conviction, a conviction and something just speaks against it, what I want to do is actually uh, use that as an opportunity to, you know, 
learn to inhabit the opposite position for a moment. Yeah. That is actually a, a really good exercise. It's like, what if I was one of them for one second? Yeah. And just like, it's almost like an acting gig, mm-hmm. like impersonation, you know? And I, I, by doing that, you come back to who you are uh, with a slightly different change perspective. No, know? I agree. It's I, like a generosity. I agree. And I find that easier to do with things. Um, in a more abstract sense, you know, like I find it easier. For instance, like the, the reason I don't get instantly annoyed if someone starts talking a bit, uh, you know, Nazi-ish, for instance. Right. It doesn't actually offend me. Now, granted, I'm not in one of the targeted groups or whatever. Sure. And I'm actually a pretty fucking Aryan fellow myself. But I, it, that doesn't upset me in the same way that it does. I, I, I think, right. like, for instance, in, in, in the example I just gave about this girl who I was kind of dating who started saying stupid shit, I think the times that I get most angry is when I want the person I'm talking to, I want them to be better. Right. Like, I want them to, you know, so that girl I was sort of trying to date, and I was like, no, 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 I, I can't, we can't go anywhere if you're Oh, I see. I see like what this, you're saying. You know? Right, right. It whereas, was an obstacle to you and her. Yeah. Whereas, if I'm talking about religion in general or thinking about religion in general, it really doesn't bother me what people believe. But because it's a person that I care about, and this is why I tend to get in the worst arguments. I'll tend to get in are with people who I kind of either want to be friends with or want to like. Right. And right. if they have something in them which, I, yeah, I just don't. You know like what? that. Then I, I kind of I, I feel this need to try and change it. Well, well, uh, which is probably a terrible. Control. No, actually, no, type, uh, no, that is true. So I, I can absolutely relate to that. I mean, uh, and so, I mean, I just told you what I do with students or like, you know, this this person that you're talking about, I had no investment with. I mean, I, I, I didn't know her, right? But uh, let's say when you and I go, you know, when we argue, we don't pull our guns. I mean, no. I, I still... I mean, I'm still a. Uh, I have a mode of arguing which is different than yours. You're more. You're more like sort of feisty. Yeah? Um, <laughs> That's because I don't have the academic skills to be able to no, be subtle. I, it's, 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 no, I know a lot of like people who have academic skills who are. It's just a temperament thing. Also, maybe yeah. I think so. I mean, maybe not only, but yeah. Um, Almost everyone in my life has told me that I'm argumentative. Yeah, like, you are in a in a bad way. It, well, you know. also me, and and actually, I had a recent experience very similar to what you were saying, which is uh, with a person you know that I'm very very close to and who I care for very much, right? And I got, I was already upset because it was well, it doesn't matter what the the conversation was about, but um, it wasn't personal or anything. It was a uh, abstract. It was theoretical. Uh, she's an academic as well, and we got into a full blown argument, right? But because I care for her, right, and I was like, I, you can't go there if <laughs> if we are going to be cool, right, right? And it's not one of those situations where it's like, oh, this is too awful for you to hold. It's more like I cannot intellectually respect you if you if you defend us. You know? Yeah. So going back to <laughs> what your credentials are, which uh, seems to be the, that's the through line of this. This whole episode, I think, is trying to figure out who I am. Why? Why are you? Oh, yeah. what, what, why are you what, so confident about all of this? Yeah. Well, I'm not. I mean, I, I really am not. I mean, I I uh, I love philosophy, but I am by no means, uh, other than in, in a few specialized questions and issues, I am very mercurial. I've changed my mind so many times. Um, I did a BA in philosophy uh, in an Ivy League school. Uh, I was very, very happy doing that. <laughs> I got a PhD and a master's in comparative literature, but with a specialization in philosophy. Uh, 
And most of my publications and, you know, uh, well, the book I've written, which will get published this year. Oh, congrats. Um, yeah. Um, is, is strictly philosophical. And every, I mean, I, I'm a philosopher by craft. I teach philosophy at the university. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's it. All right. Yeah. yeah. So you're way more learned than I am. But that being said, we've had plenty of, philosophical arguments and debates and conversations and all of that and I've learned a lot from you I wouldn't imagine you've learned very much from me no, but you no, have no. you have uh, decided to label me a few things a few times kind of so apparently I am a few philosophical things yeah but completely your by views, accident your views converge to more you know a few philosophical positions recognizable positions yeah right? by accident so what um, would you what how would you describe me philosophically speaking right You've well that's, a that's things, a good, but. yes i mean i mean that's a very very good question i mean so uh thinking about it in a more uh compartmentalized way right so with regards to epistemology i think you are I'm going to explain what epistemology yes, is. Yes, theory of so knowledge. You, sorry. Yeah. Yes, sorry, sorry. Epistemology means theory of knowledge. No, so, we're, so, not, we're not talking to brilliant people here. No, no. Morons. Pond life. Yes. Yeah. The low no. of the earth. <laughs> the lowest Phyllis of the law. Yeah. <laughs> no. Go ahead. So in yeah. terms of epistemology, uh, yeah. Epistemology just basically means, the what is knowledge? That's the basic question that epistemology asks itself. How do we define knowledge? What do we know, right? Okay. Um, so what am I? So for example, so, so just to, 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 to lay out what the basic positions are, you can be a skeptic, for example, mm. who claims, oh, we don't know really anything because we could be wrong. There's no way to be sure about nothing. Um, you know, all knowledge is precarious. There is no knowledge at the end of the day. Or you can be a kind of, quote unquote, realist about some kind of knowledge. For example, a scientific realist. We know that the truths of physics tell us what the world of matter is like, right? We know what the afterlife is like because the word of God tells us what it is like. You know, that's another kind of, you know, uh, epistemological realism. So anyway, back to what I think you would qualify under. I think you're a healthy measure of both skepticism and realism. On the one hand, you have no truck with religiosity. You seem fairly uh, steady in... You're in a kind of scientific realism where you 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 seem to trust what science tells says. You don't believe in any kind of spooky, uh, supernatural, strange stuff. Yeah. Even though you dabble in in in, in those. I'm trends. interested in it. I'm you're, fascinated by you, it. But uh, yeah, I definitely don't. I don't think you believe in, in that's been. Yes, you don't believe in ghosts. You have those no. uh, gods no. and demons, souls. No, no. I'm interested in what they might uh, refer to. You know, especially God and gods and stuff like that. Like I think, you know, calling any one thing a god or any few oh. things a god could be sure descriptive of uh, forces of nature or yeah, you know, the physics like, of the universe, the workings of the universe. Sure, why not? But yeah, like to, Spinoza. Yeah, but in terms of like whether I believe the myth mythology of it is all real, no, like right, you know, right. uh, there's very sure. little convincing me of that. Same with ghosts, same with so. So I, th I think I, I think so. I've always said. I mean, the one thing that really comes across is you're an accelerationist. That's the thing that you keep saying. Yeah. So uh, accelerationism is a view, which uh, 
well, it has its roots in Marx, but it was popularized by Deleuze and Guattari and, and, and Nick Land, and a, and a British philosopher called Nick Land. And it has contemporary uh, variants. Uh, one of them espoused by Nick Cernusek and Alex Williams. Anyway, long story short, what accelerationism means is the thesis that we should not uh, believe that any form of cultural human formation, whether it be religious, whether it be the way we experience the world through our bodies, whether it be our economies, our societies, uh, our political systems, is are uh, here to stay. That in fact change is happening ever more rapidly, that's slipping out of our control, and that the future in a certain way is something that we have no control over. Yeah. That the future is we are not the masters of the future, that in a certain way we are only instruments or, or pieces in a, in a machine that's assembling itself in the future, yeah. right? Well, I mean, for, for me anyway, it's more we're heading here so we might as well get there now. Exactly. Like, that's let's a, yeah. lose our ties to sentimentality and stuff like that. That's a very good way to put it, yes, yeah. also. So, like at the normative level, yeah. And that, that influences me politically as well because like, you know, on, on the very... If you were just to ask me for my emotional reaction to things like universal basic income or something like that, right. I'd be like, well, no, you have to work, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But realistically, I'm like, well, no, if we get there, then we get here, then we get there. And basically, my end goal is that we do all live in a simulation of some kind. Exactly. That's the best. That's my end goal. It's like, if we, as soon as we get that technology, as soon as that's available, that we can do, you know, brain mapping or whatever the fuck, that we can put ourselves in pods and basically simulate our entire life. Yes. That's where we should be, and there should be nothing to stop that happening. Right. Well, and I, I mean, don't think that's acceleration slightly. is going one step further. So this is this is where you might be one foot, uh, not well, not both foots fully in the door. Uh-huh. Well, it's going to happen regardless. And there's nothing you can do about it. So it's not about like, uh, sure, we can't uh, hold on for dear life to prevent it from happening, right? Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is, uh, what we experience at the surface as we are in control because we are free, self-regulating, self-controlling agents, beings, right? Uh-huh. They uh, Accelerationism comes dangerously close sometimes to a form of determinism where they say, right. you know, this is going to happen regardless and you have no say on the matter. So what you experience as an actual choice, right, typical sort of narrative, mm-hmm. in fact, is... An automated dynamic. Yeah. So that automation, AI singularity, uh, you know, shuttling from the human into a post-human mm-hmm. sort of kind of int- uh, intelligence, whatever you want to call it, virtual mm-hmm. uh, reality. All of these things are um, preordained, not by divine providence, but by. Well, that's a, that's a good question. What guarantees that this will? Well, happen? see, I, I I I'm not exactly a determinist, at, sure. at least not as far as that goes, because you know, for all, for all we know, the world could end entirely within the next few years. Like it could, let's yes. say. And for for them to say, oh well, this is going to happen regardless, that seems a little bit too certain to me. But, but oh, but that's that's different. Uh, just let me cr- uh, be because that so determinism does not entail that we know 
that our predictions are certainly true. Uh -huh. Determinism means that there is an order, a causal regularity or order right, of things right, right. that will happen regardless. So what? So even if we're wrong about our predictions, the point would be the determinist would say what was going to happen was going to happen regardless. No, no, I understand that. But yes. if you're saying the accelerationists by default tend to say, well, here's where we're going to end up, so we should. Mm. You know, uh, that I'm not sure about. I'm not sure if we'll, uh, we'll ever get to that point. But I think because that oh, is yeah. the logical endpoint. Oh, I see. I see. I see what you're saying. So for me, it's not so much about de determinism or anything like that. And I think, for all, for all I know, we could never get there. But it would be a shame if we didn't, because I know the just looking at the way that technology is going. Right. I mean, look at the way that even video games have improved in uh, artificial intelligence and graphics simulation and uh, VR and stuff like that within the past what forty years. To see that and then to be like, right, within a few hundred years, it doesn't seem unusual. It doesn't seem unrealistic yeah. to me that we could put ourselves in some kind of, you know, hibernation yeah. where we experience everything virtually. And that seems like it would solve a lot of uh, a lot of the problem. Well, not only a lot, almost all of the problems that we have in terms of, you know, climate and stuff. All these things that we worry about that threaten our existence and threaten our mm -hmm. way of life could all be entirely solved by giving everyone entirely their own life, their own existence, their, their own reality. Yeah. And there seems to be that seems to be where, in my mind, at some point we will have to end up. Mm. If we can, well, yeah. And, again, um, barring the asteroid or, or some—I mean, something. Oh, well, yeah, sure. Something catastrophic yeah, could mean, happen, and then we all die. But I mean, I, I tend to be a slightly just for uh, you know rigor's sake apprehensive about uh, jumping into the bandwagon that says this is definitely going to happen. Of course, we don't know, right? Like, no, we, I don't know. We that. don't know for sure. Well, what kind of problems the science will come across? We don't know how long it would take. No. We don't know what kind of collateral problems might get in the way, like ecology, whatever, right? Exactly. I just feel like it's the logical end point. And exactly. therefore, we should but, be trying to get there as quick as we can. But, but, but yeah. I think where you remain uh, unremittingly an accelerationist is in the idea that we should not, as you put it very well, uh, uh, attach any kind of like uh, normative, sentimental. Yeah. They're just sentimental but normative, right? Like mm -hmm. attachments to... Well, this is the way it has been, so therefore it should Yeah, like be. we shouldn't go there. Like, yeah. you know, like... Um, one of the creeds of accelerationism is, uh, or at least in its original um, Landian version, is that we haven't seen anything yet, and that mm -hmm. you know we should push the process to the furthest. Right. Now, accelerationism also comes with a thesis concerning the nature of capitalism and the mm -hmm. uh, and the coordination between capitalism and artificial intelligence, and therefore technology. Right. Uh, so. Uh, the way it is theorized by uh, accelerationist thinkers, specifically, again, uh, land, is that there is this cross-excitation or coordinated movement of capitalist deregulation mm -hmm. and accelerating technological production. Sure. Um, one is, so uh, technological production and AI, which mm -hmm. is a part of it, of course, is to, the pr to practice what uh, capitalism as a mode of production is at the level of theory. Yeah. The cross-excitation of market and technology is modernity, and that's what leads to post-human singularity. That's well, accelerated. And that's what frustrates me so much about uh, contemporary political debates or, you know, uh, which who should we elect and stuff like that. And, you know, you, you can but you've got your Bernie, you've got your Republicans, you've got your Trumps and people like that. And all of those people, even if your I Bernies might... Your and your Bidens. Your Bernies, your Bidens. <laughs> look, even if I feel more sympathy towards one, where it's like, oh, I, li I like his policies more, and I like, I, obviously I like Bernie's policies more in general than I like Trump's. But... 
at the same time, I'm kind of like frustrated by the fact that no, none I of them are really pushing anything further. I agree. It's all just arguing over the same things we were arguing about in the 90s. Yes. You know, oh, should we have socialized healthcare? Should oh, we and not? That's, that's even and being generous. Like, 90s, this is like, oh, yeah. I mean, no, especially I, with Bernie, like, you know, so the, the, the version of social democracy yeah. that he was... It's something that he's like, been fighting for his, his whole life. The problem is, he's been fighting for his whole life. Yeah. His whole life has been, has spent decades, many yeah. decades. It's like, we need to be pushing, I think, a little bit further. I completely We agree. need to come to yeah. some kind of basic agreement or, or even like a basic kind of ignorance. Uh, ignorance? Ignoral? To, to start ignorance? to forget. No, what? not ignorance, because that implies stupidity or not caring or whatever. But we need to come I'll to. Learn between we- the two parties, I think we need to say, all right, these things are not worth so much focus anymore. What we need to focus on is how we're going to push forward. Like, so back in the, you know, uh, ancient Greece and uh, especially ancient Rome, emperors would consult with not, you know, businessmen or people like that. They would consult with thinkers and uh, philosophers. You know, Seneca, for instance, is. A pretty good example of one uh, to try and figure out. Okay, where is society going? Like, where where do we go from here? What is the aim? What is the ultimate aim? And it's not to say that they necessarily did great things with that. Uh, you know, looking back now, but what you can say now is the to to have political candidates basically uh, looking to other political thinkers and people like that is it's like well why not that's the one thing that i liked very much about andrew yang as a candidate was that he was at least saying all right here's what we actually need to look at because this is going to happen yes uh basically automation replacement of the workforce this is going to happen so instead of jobs and yeah so so instead of making emotional arguments about whether a good day's work or a good day's fucking whatever is important or whether everyone should just we need to just focus on federal jobs for everyone yeah we just need to focus on what is going to happen and what needs to happen and that's where i fall down on for instance uh universal basic income in my like in my lizard brain and the way that i've been brought up or whatever is like no you need to work for what you get yes that is ingrained within me but at the same time i'm like well that is not going to be the way of life anymore that's just not going to be that's not sustainable and it, it, the way that technology is moving forward the way that societies are moving forward the population growth you know huge population growth constantly every fucking day right it's just not going to work and yes. so therefore you need to think about okay well what can we do next and what can we do then and when i sit down for a long time in a fucking dark room and think about that and think about where it's going to go next and where it's going to go from there and there and there and there i get to a point where it's like, all right within the next few centuries we will be able to just simulate existence i believe right. and a lot of people have a real opposition to that because they're like, well, no, but it's not real and it needs to be real, blah, blah, blah. I mean, the thought experiment, I, I don't know who originated this. So I'm sure it's not my own, mm. but a basic thought experiment would be if you had the option to just be pumped with a chemical that made you feel constant euphoria uh, and complete uh, lack of worry and lack of concern and you're just completely content all the time. It's called heroin, by the way. Well, sure, you know, but if you're able to be pumped with that continuously and live in a constant state of euphoria, would you do it? And most people say no, and yes. they say that because they uh, say, "Oh, well, no, there's no, you know, no light without shade and all of that kind of yes. stuff." But that's, those are all quite sentimental arguments. And I agree. then, so when you take it back to what's more likely to happen, which is some kind of simulation, I believe, or virtual reality, or uh, simulated existence, right? people say similar things. They're like, oh, well, no, but it's not real. And then 
you start to wonder, well, you know, what, what's more real about this than there is about a simulation? They of go, course. You know, because for all intents and purposes, this could be a simulation. It really doesn't make that much difference. When you really think about, for instance, um, a lot of people seem to think that we might be in a simulation already. And there, there, is, yeah. there are pretty good arguments for they that as go well. Back, that's a very, I mean, that's an argument that goes back all the way to Descartes. How well, it goes you, back to how Descartes. How do you know that you're not dreaming? Right? Well, how do you know that you're Well, not there's that, but also uh, thinking more purely scientifically, uh, yes. you could, and it, and it kind of ties into the time travel argument as well a little bit. Yeah. Um, if we do, if humanity at any point in their existence do manage to manufacture simulations uh, or, you know, create simulations, then if, they, if they're able to do that once, then they are potentially able to do it infinite amount of times within the first simulation they create. That's right. It becomes an infinite loop, basically. So, therefore, the chances that we are in one of in those other words, you have right now. A series of embedded simulations within embed yeah. simulations. But let's say let's say you start a simulation which simulates the whole of human history up until that point. Right. Within that simulation, you have also a simulation of the simulation. Managed to create a, a simulation, simulation yeah. below that and it becomes layers and layers and layers. And some people argue that the chances that we right now are in the base reality might be quite small. Like we, we could potentially be in one of those. Well, this is something that actually was already uh, in fiction. It's been explored in many, many, many uh, different registers. Uh, there's a great story by Jorge Luis Borges, the Argentine writer, yeah. she, uh, co- called The Circle of Ruins, Las Ruinas Circulares. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you read it. It's just a couple I don't pa- think so. It's a couple pages long. But it, it, it's, it's, um, it doesn't use the, the you know, uh, simulation example no, uses the dream example because yeah. obviously this was you know written in the 30s, but but you no you're absolutely right. I mean again we don't know where we're gonna get if we're gonna get there wh- when we're gonna get there and so on and so forth. Um, but what's what's absolutely right is that there is a trend. Even you know it, this doesn't necessarily have to do with anybody in the political spectrum. It's both left and right. A kind of resistance to the idea of, you know, let's say complete assimilation into a virtual sphere or a virtual world, yeah. virtual life. So one of the reasons why, uh, or rather, what I should say is that accelerationism is often also attached to another philosophical position, which is called posthumanism. Mm-hmm. The idea that we shouldn't cling into the idea that we as humans, homo sapiens, these biological creatures which evolved from the apes, blah, 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 right? Mm-hmm. Clever apes, as Nietzsche called them, um, are here to stay. Mm-hmm. That if the means emerge, as they might very well, of migrating intelligence, experience, or resources into more expressive, expansive, durable, and uh, interconnected, energy-efficient, etc., modes of intelligence, why not? That the idea that there is something precious lost if we do that compromise if we cross that boundary that is just the latest version of you know religiosity or the latest version of piety you know the nietzsche little parable right about the stars no i don't um do you mind it's like it's one paragraph no go ahead it's right here hold on so here's a quote it's a very famous quote from nietzsche um it's actually the opening in a very famous essay of his, which I usually teach, called On Truth and Lies in a Non-Moral Sense. And it's a fable about the end of humanity. 
Here's the quote. Once upon a time, in some out-of-the-way corner of that universe, which is dispersed into numberless, twinkling solar systems, there was a star upon which clever beasts invented knowing. That was the most arrogant and mendacious moment of world history, but nevertheless it was only a minute. After nature had drawn a few breaths, the star cooled and congealed, and the clever beasts had to die. One might invent such a fable, and yet still would not have adequately, adequately illustrated how miserable, how shadowy and transient, how aimless and arbitrary the human intellect looks within nature. There were eternities during which it did not exist, and when it is all over with the human intellect, nothing will have happened. So, of course, the, the accelerationist thesis is that it is not only this apocalyptic predicament where the human intellect emerges as a kind of fulguration, as an anomaly, brief anomaly in the eons of history, of cosmic history, and then ceases as the stars cool and the clever bees die, but that also the human being can be understood as a kind of point of passage. Of course, we are, as we understand because of the theory of evolution, a point of passage between pre-sapient life and sapient life. But one of the theses of accelerationism, and not just accelerationism, but many forms of uh, you know, futurism and post-humanism, stipulate that the human is just a transitory phase toward some other form of enhanced sapience, right? Uh, in AI, they speak of the singularity hypothesis, right? The moment that AI is able to not only achieve human levels of you know, intellectual competence, but in fact can potentially exponentially exceed them. And once that stage in our technological evolution is reached, um, it's very difficult to predict how history will look after that, right? And for us to keep attached, as you say, to because of sentimental, normative, political, religious reasons um, to this humanity that we are in the flesh and bone seems parochial, naive, and perhaps... Fucking hopeless. stupid. I'm fucking stupid. <laughs> All right, well, that'll, that'll about do it for this one, I think. Um yeah, we'll be uh, we'll be getting into all of this stuff. I mean, there's a wealth of stuff to oh, yeah. talk about, and you and I have entertained conversations of hours and hours over the years, uh, which we can perhaps try and replicate here for other people to hear if or they want to. flesh out in their own way. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. for some reason I thought that the conversations we have that tend to drive people out of the room would make for good podcasts listening. <laughs> hey, I, guess, I, I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure. I'll be back. Thank you, sir. All right.